The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased to welcome as my guest this week the broadcaster and historian Jonathan Dimbleby. Jonathan's new book is called Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War. Jonathan, welcome. Now, tell me first of all, what attracted you to Barbarossa? I mean, this rather grim and to a certain extent well-trodden subject as the, the material for your next book. It is grim, extraordinarily grim, and it's been well trodden by some very good historians over the years. I don't think that its significance has been fully appreciated, and I came to get a far better sense of that out of earlier books that I had been writing, because I started by writing about the events leading up to the Battle of El Alamein, and I went on to write about the Battle at Sea in the Atlantic. And When I started doing that, I kept finding myself going to the Soviet Union and the relationships between the Western allies and Stalin. And the more I looked at that, the more I became extraordinarily curious about this massive operation, the hugest in history, its significance, what it was like, what it meant. And so I started to read extensively around that. And then I started to sense that it was extraordinarily important to the degree that I believe, and I'm not alone in this, that, and this can be quite disconcerting for some people, particularly those who have families who fought in Europe and elsewhere, that the prime responsibility for the defeat of Hitler was Stalin and the Soviet Union, and that the Fact is that by the end of December 1941, not 1945, to all intents and purposes, it would be quite impossible for Hitler to prevail against Stalin. The rest was attritional conflict on a huge and dreadful scale. And I felt not enough people knew that. And I think it is the case that most people still like to believe that it was the Western allies who won the war. It's understandable that people should feel that. It was a huge success in the end, a very complicated success, lots of errors strewn along the way. But I think that one can draw safely a conclusion, not safely, nothing is ever safe. History is jigsaw puzzles. But I believe that the importance of the events that took place after D-Day was that in the end we saved Western Europe from Stalin rather than from Hitler. Well, now that question of the sort of jigsaw aspect of history, we just know because you've used sources, you know, including extensive Russian sources. How does the Great Patriotic War, which I know is a kind of almost sacred thing still in the Russian national mythology, how is it viewed by historians in Russia? Do their accounts vary substantially and their view of it, their perspective, very substantially from the Western and indeed American historians. The Soviet historians 
just unequivocally called it the great patriotic war, the heroes who fell and died in far greater numbers than in any fell in the West. Later historians took a more detached view. Um, the archives became available in the 90s, so historians could look at them much more closely and form a, a measured judgment without fear of being censored out of print. And they, there are different emphases. You will get some historians and you get some expatriate uh, Russian historians who, whose antipathy to the Soviet Union is as deep as any persons in the West, maybe, who tend to fall over backwards to suggest that the, that the war was chaotic, that it just depended upon the brutality of Stalin and the generals, the readiness to mow down people, to have blocking groups, to destroy those who dared to run back when defeat was inevitable in a conflict, who were entirely indifferent, who downplay to, uh, the, the genuine patriotism that undoubtedly inspired a very huge number of people in the Soviet Union, because even in the Soviet Union, it would not have been possible to dragoon millions of people into supporting a, a war to which they were opposed. They were not. There was a, the overwhelming majority. There was terrible punishment. Uh, there was terrible cruelty on the Soviet side. But the overwhelming majority of the Soviet people and those who fought were fighting for their, their motherland their farms, their homes, their villages, their towns, to get rid of the, Nazi, of the Nazi fascist persecutor. Yes, I think you say somewhere in the book that they had nothing to, much to gain but an enormous amount to lose. I, I, I think that's about it. Of course there were ideologues. There were those who were, who'd come out of, of Tsarist times who saw the Soviet Union's system as a saviour, the economic revolution. And life did improve. I mean, there was better food for people in the cities. There was immense persecution of those who lived in the Soviet Union who produced that food in order to achieve that food for the cities, for the urban industrial population. But life did improve. The price at that point seemed to be a relatively worth paying. There hadn't been freedom under the Tsar. You know, it wasn't as if there was the choice of the czar or democracy. There was pre-revolution and revolution. I'm oversimplifying, of course, but that's crudely it. And so uh, they were defending that without a great deal of love. There was a, a great anxiety in the intelligence services within Russia, NKVD, etc., that they would not support the war, that maybe they wouldn't want to fight, and their intelligence was far greater and, and more intense than anything that most of us could ever imagine. You know, every letter, every conversation in one way or another is reported on. There was huge relief when they discovered that actually the Russians supported the war. Yes. And of course, that's not entirely true of those areas outside Russia itself, where they'd experienced direct persecution by the Soviet Union and in significant numbers rather welcomed the Nazi invasion. Yes, I think is it Vasily Grossman you quote as saying the sort of Stalin's mob was quite dismayed to discover that in eastern Poland and the Ukraine, you know, the advancing Nazis were regarded as actually probably rather a good thing. He, he, I think he was he was he was taken aback by it, although he he observed and Vasily Grossman was the great reporter of the war, as he is the the great novelist of the Second World War. A quite astonishing quality of judgment, uh, sensitivity, awareness, and huge range of ability to interpret what was happening at the time in ways that could just about 
be reported, but he kept notes at the time of what he really saw and what went what went into those diaries, had they been found, would have, without any question, have had him in, in the Lubyanka. You know, he would have been locked up for them, if not worse. Well, not getting ahead of ourselves, a great virtue of your book is that it, it puts all this in its sort of geopolitical and diplomatic context. And you spend, I think, probably the first third of the book or half of the book talking about the sort of diplomatic background, because one of the things that seems extraordinary at least to start with, is that, you know, A, we were so blindsided ideologically in Britain by the Nazi-Soviet pact, and then that the Nazis in turn, and the, you know, there's this kind of scorpion dance, isn't there, between Stalin and Hitler, where even though it should be fairly obvious that this pact can't be sustained, they seem to think it can be. I rather wish I'd used that phrase, scorpion dance. <laughs> it's a good one. I was originally thinking that I might just write about the operation, but of course you immediately then have to say, well, how did it start? And that takes you back. It takes you back to the trigger in the Balkans, which led to the moment when Hitler said, right, we're going to do it in the spring. He had intended to do it from the summer before, uh, from the summer of 1940. And then you say, well, you know, why did that pact which was in place break down? And you look at that, which is the Balkans and the competition for the Balkans between uh, Russia, essentially Russia and Third Reich. You then say, well, how did the pact come into being? So you go back and back. I mean, of course, you can go back into medieval times, but I didn't. I went back to the end of the First World War and the Treaty of Rapallo, which even a significant number of my peers who write history are not entirely well acquainted with. It came out as a secret treaty in 1922 when Lloyd George was holding uh, an attempt to secure a Europe which would be economically and therefore socially and politically less fragmented than it was as a consequence of Versailles. In the corners of that, there was, in Rapallo, the Soviet representative and the um, German foreign minister, and they, were, they had been excluded from Versailles effectively, because they were pariah states at the end of the First World War. But they were invited under uh, Lloyd George's aegis to this great conference in Genoa. They were put up in Rapallo, where they put the finishing touches to a deal which they had been working on in secret for months before. And that was, had two elements in it. One was a diplomatic concordat, an economic deal, and secondly, a secret protocol which gave the Germans the right to practice weapons in the Soviet Union in Russia in return for Russian raw materials. And that lasted right the way through, even when Hitler came to power. And there was this massive war of words between the two, between Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union in the public prints. This deal was the Rapallo deal, uh, reinforced in 1926 by the Berlin Treaty, was constantly renewed right up until 1939 and then 1940, 41. It was renewed and it was worth in 1941 something in the order of seven and a half billion US dollars in today's money. And immediately on the back of that was the, the deal with another secret protocol between Molotov and Ribbentrop, which divided up Poland in half and gave spheres of influence 
right from the Balkans to the Baltic, to on the one hand the Soviet Union, on the other Germany. Both agreed that in absolute bad faith, the Scorpions were dancing around one another. And when the deal was signed, Hitler was having dinner in the Berghof, his mountain retreat, and Albert Speer was with him. And when he got news from Ribbentrop that it had gone through the deal, it had been signed, he said, now I've got them. <laughs> Almost simultaneously, Stalin said words to the effect that he thinks he's got me. He hasn't. I'll be the winner in the end. The difference between them was that Hitler was ready to move and he had to move because uh, Germany was not a growing economic might by this point. Everything had been poured into militarism. He'd had huge success, of course, on the Western Front. Uh, Stalin was getting stronger, wanted delay because his army, ha ha having purged the army of its leadership, it was in a a very weak state, both in leadership terms, in training, um, and in readiness to go on the front foot in battle. So he wanted to postpone it. So it suited both parties to have the deal in bad faith. Hitler, to make sure that he'd got his ducks in a row before going in, Stalin to postpone the battle for as long as possible. Now, you, you make the point that... Incidentally, incidentally yes. sorry, Sam, it, it isn't, it, for, for those who might think, oh my goodness, I've got to read all that diplomatic uh, history beforehand. I, I hope it's quite a lively, dramatic history, because it was a dramatic, a lively period. But it actually takes up about a third of the book. I think at first, slightly to the surprise of my editor, <laughs> the, 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 first, the first, sorry, it's a quarter of the book. It's the first 50,000 words of the book takes you up to June the 22nd, 1941. Uh, but... You make the point in the book that there are two blatantly incompatible, particularly when it comes to the Danube and the Black Sea, that, you know, Russia will never accept anything other than total domination. And the Germans equally absolutely need these strategically to prosecute its war in southern Europe. How come they were, was it sort of cognitive dissonance that while they were still maintaining this accord, this you know, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, they weren't able simply to go, the writing is on the wall right here? It's a very good question. I think that the, the emphasis initially was on the, the problems in the Baltic between them. As, as problems began to come to the surface, as they were bound to do because of the incompatibility of their aspirations. But the, the eye of the Soviet Union, of Stalin, a Russian eye, going right back to the time of the Tsars and before, was always on access to the Black Sea, because that was their only warm water access. It was fundamental to trade. It was fundamental to prevent invasion, which there had been before. And there were no circumstances in which they would have allowed, wittingly, willingly, their hegemony to have been challenged in that area. Conversely, Hitler saw that route down to the Balkans as fundamentally important to expanding the Third Reich. He wanted total control of the Danube because, for the obvious reasons, it was the main thoroughfare for, for goods and it gave him potential control of the Black Sea. Moreover, you control the Balkans and you have open, which was a very live option, the possibility of heading south towards India and the Middle East and it's one of the great, for me, and this I discovered in the first book I, I, I wrote about the Middle East, 
and it has not had very much attention, incidentally, or it's been slightly sideswiped by other aspects of the war. But it's fundamental to understanding both Hitler's decision to go down into and crush Yugoslavia ruthlessly and then go into Greece, uh, down into the Balkans, and the uh, decision by the British to seek to resist that catastrophically as it happened because we were driven out of Greece in virtually no time. Hitler feared that the British, then it was the British, the Americans weren't yet involved, would drive up through what Churchill much later described as the soft underbelly, right, wrongly, um, drive up through into the, into the Third Reich from the south via, via Greece or destroy the Baku oil wells, which Hitler had his eyes on and wanted to protect. And conversely, Churchill feared that Hitler had in mind what he did indeed have in mind at some point, that he would move into the Middle East, that the, the Suez Canal would fall, that he would go to India. And Churchill's preoccupation, overwhelming preoccupation at this point in the war, was the British Empire. Along incidentally, it must be said, with his government, which is a cross-party government, you know, there was no suggestion at that point, except with a very small number of people, that the British Empire wasn't what we had and what we should have. Yeah. Now, Stalin, I mean, of, of all the sort of self-delusions and denials that bedog this first half of it, the weirdest thing, surely, is that as you quote somebody saying, you know, Stalin didn't trust his own mother, but he trusted Hitler. Why on earth was that, do you think? Well, I think it was he, he wanted to believe that Hitler was playing straight. He wanted to believe that because he did not want war against... Um, I, I think those, those uh, um, revisionists, there are very few of them, hist histories that suggest that he was waiting to wage war in Europe in order to take over Europe and to spread communism by that means is, is just barking mad, frankly. But, you know, you can make a colourable case. The fact is that he did not want to believe the reality which was should have been staring him in the face. OK, intelligence can get things wrong. It can misinterpret. But the intelligence that came from Japan, the intelligence that came from France, the intelligence that came from within Germany was of a very high order. And he did not want to believe it. And so even when it was put before him in pretty unequivocal terms, he denounced those in the most vulgar terms, denounced those who, who, who were providing the energy. Germany was sort of literally invading, you know, troops massed on the border, starting to shell them. And he still said, oh, no, it's, it's an accident, didn't he? You know? Yeah, it's an accident. He, he, he would not let the troops who were at the front and only they were off duty that weekend. There was a big off duty weekend. It was midsummer. So the troops that were at the front were, I mean, they were more than skeletal, but they weren't much more than skeletal. They were, a lot of them were short of arms and ammunition. There were defectors who were actually communist sympathizers coming across the border and saying, We are about to attack you. We are, and even after the attack was launched, he, ref he said this must be a provocation by some, some of the German generals. It's a provocation. We mustn't do anything about it. You cannot go onto a war footing. So by the time that the Soviet Union was on a full war footing, the Red Army was on a war footing, half the air force had been destroyed on the ground, uncamouflaged. We, air, air is actually fundamental at that point in any conflict. So the Germans had complete air superiority. The Wehrmacht was in total control and could walk in. 
without any difficulty across the first borders, right the way across the line. This is, this is a very long line, you know, this is, this is right the way from the Balkans to the Baltic, you know, three, three great spearheads. Yes, and you, they, they did sort of start well. I mean, I think, as you, you say, you know, when, when Russia invaded Finland, you know, it showed up how ropey the Red Army was. So did Hitler have good reason to believe at this stage that, that this attack might prosper? He had good reason to believe that if it was going to be as swift as he thought it would be, by misunderstanding, misreading the potential strength of the Red Army, that it would prosper. It is notable, though, that before the war, when they did a, an assessment, before, before the invasion, in January of 1941, an assessment was done of the potential fighting ability of Red Army soldiers. And that assessment warned um, the high command uh, that the, the Russians will put up much stronger resistance than one might expect, that you should treat their potential to fight back and their weaponry too as being not as inferior as a lot of people liked to believe. That said, it wasn't only Hitler that believed it would be a walkover in six to eight weeks. Intelligence services, Whitehall, London, White House, Washington, all thought it would be over in a, a matter of... You, you, you made noises of support because you hoped that the longer, this is I'm talking about the West now, the longer they went on fighting one another, the longer you could keep the Soviet Union in the game, the more uh, strength the Western allies would have to counter the threat from, from Hitler. And so Stalin was sort of right in thinking that the, the West's making nice with him after the German invasion was largely because they hoped that Hitler would wear himself out against the Russians and kill two birds with one stone. Well, I think that that is perhaps marginally overstating it, but his suspicion that that was the case was well grounded. You, there were British officials, British politicians effectively saying, I mean, Baldwin was the first of them. He wasn't prime minister. He said, if we can have the Germans killing the Soviets on the battlefield and the Soviets killing the Germans on the battlefield, that solves a big problem for us. So and Stalin, you know, Stalin had intelligence in London. He knew what was being said. Now, the Kremlin was not ill-informed. And I think that Stalin's view was that, that what the Allies wanted, what British wanted particularly, again, because uh, Roosevelt in June was not yet in the war, of course, the Americans weren't in the war, that what the British wanted was to fight our war against the Germans on the ground for him. And he, and he said so very openly and very aggressively, got severely up uh, Churchill's nose as a consequence. But the commitment was a very powerful rhetorical commitment to help in June. You know, the day of the invasion, Churchill sat down and wrote a broadcast, his, his own broadcast. He didn't show it to Anthony Eden because he feared that, that the foreign officer would try and tone it down, in which he was at his best, not empty rhetorical phrases, but vivid descriptions of, he, of seeing the Soviet peasants, the Russian peasants who tilled the land with the jackboots coming over them. It's very powerful stuff. We will do what we can. Well, doing what you can is not an absolute commitment to doing a great deal. And he did not want to do a great deal. And although the uh, United States quite swiftly, not so volubly, gave its support to the Soviet struggle and 
uh, Roosevelt wrote to Stalin, the, the actual aid that went through from June until December was nugatory for a lot of reasons, but partly um, that Churchill didn't want it to go through. He wanted it to, he, he, he was, we were in big trouble elsewhere in the world. And, and we were, you know, we were stretched, beyond stretched. We look at the army today and say it's overstretched. <laughs> you know, it mattered then hugely. The character of the war, you talk, and I think you're adopting Hitler's phrase, of this war, at least from the Nazi side, as a war of extermination. How did that percolate down and manifest itself? I mean, you've got a you quote, I think, as one of your, your ground source you know, sources said, you know, it is genuine satisfaction for us to be able to trample the Bolshevists in the mud where they belong. I mean, was this absolutely from the top of the arm, you know, the top of the high command to the soldiers on the ground that it was, you know, a sort of genocidal feeling? It was the word exterminate in German, and I'm not a German scholar, is is ambiguous as between kill physically and destroy and eradicate from uh, the area that you wish to conquer. Hitler, right back in Mein Kampf and afterwards, described the Slavs as subhuman. So the Slavs, who of course were the people that were being invaded, did not count as human beings. The Bolshevik commissars were to be, there was a, a, a the Commissar Order, as it was called, which went out before the war, which was accepted by the Wehrmacht High Command that after the war liked to say that they were not associated with what would now be described as crimes against humanity, passed on all the way down the line. If commissars were effectively slaughtered on sight, who was a commissar and who wasn't a commissar was open to interpretation on the ground. Add into that that... Hitler, uh, the Jews for Hitler were vermin, they were, uh, they were a virus, they had to be eliminated, which again was ambiguous, which is why he very cleverly never ever said, I want you to have gas ovens. It was get rid of them. You'll know the best ways of getting rid of them, Himmler, Heydrich and so on. But right down through the ranks, the depth of anti-Semitism was extraordinarily powerful because he had presented the Jews as being the agents of the humiliation that Germany suffered in the First World War and the Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy was what they were determined to destroy. So you had to, you had to decapitate the leadership in Moscow, you had to have a Lebensraum, which meant getting rid of the Slavs. And, and I believe that a very large number, there were exceptions as there always are to these rules, a very large number of generals, officers and men at the front believed that they were dealing with a class of species that could not properly be counted as human beings and therefore anything went. Add into that, which is really important, that they, that they were fighting an enemy which fought in ways that disconcerted them. Now, instead of obeying the rules of warfare by staying in a foxhole, as I'm talking about the, the Soviet forces, they would, they would allow the Germans to go over and then stand up and turn around uh, and shoot at them. It was suicidal to do that, incidentally, but both in pure terms of, you know, they were so weak by comparison of the tanks going over them, but also they would be murdered and exterminated. You had behind the front, you, you had every civilian 
was suspect? Were they partisans? Were they supporting? So the, the civilians became murdered as well. You know, the level of atrocities, leave aside the beginnings of the, of the formal Holocaust, the level of atrocity on both sides was really high, but fantastically more uh, in scale, greater on the German side, because the, the Russians did not believe, Soviets did not believe that the Germans were subhuman, those who were fighting for, against what they regarded as fascism, whereas a great many German soldiers, and they, we can see that from their diaries and their letters, actually believed they were fighting a subhuman enemy. And that went straight back to Hitler's astonishing power of rhetoric, his charismatic ability to seduce a people into the belief that what he wanted was what they wanted. Do you think, Edward, speaking of what he wanted, clearly he was very keen on the grain, the mineral resources, the industrial wealth that was available and that he urgently needed. But at the same time, you know, there's this real obsession with eradicating Judeo-Bolshevism from the face of the earth. I mean, was the ideology or the, you know, strategic interest uppermost in his mind, do you think? Such a good question. It's one of the great questions of, the, of Operation Barbarossa. He had advanced 300, 400 miles by the summer, 200, 250 miles from Moscow. And that had been the principal... There were three targets, essentially. There was to get the heartlands in the south, in the Donbass region, take Kiev, and you get what you've just referred to, the mineral resources and you get the agricultural lands. Ukraine was fantastically rich agricultural territory. You go to the north and you you destroy Leningrad, St. Petersburg as now is as it was. And you also have the industrial centres around Petersburg, which are also very considerable. Moscow was the central thrust to start with. But as because the 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 Soviets, despite being massively defeated by being encircled in their hundreds of thousands and taken away for a terrible fate in prison camps, if they were lucky enough to survive that journey westwards, were putting up such a, a resistance that the he realised you couldn't conduct the three all at once. And he wanted to choose. He could not make up his mind in August, choose between do I make Moscow the principal target or do I go south? This led you think of the of the Wehrmacht and the and the Prussian army and what happened in the West, the, the simple exercise of massive power that destroyed the lowlands and, and took over France. What you had was a ferocious argument going on. Delay, 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 because he could not make up his mind. He, he, he described to, to one of his aides these two ideas torturing, going round in his mind, which should he go for? And he kept changing his mind. So he kept ordering um, parts of the armies. He took very direct control. Parts of the armies would be ordered south. And then when that didn't work, they were ordered back again to the centre. In the end, he settled on Moscow. But by that time, he had lost a lot of initiative because the, the Russians had been able to build up. I mean, they were still on the retreat, but they were able to build up reserves, and they were getting reserves, beginning to get reserves in, in the in the autumn, in October, significant and powerful reserves from the Russian Far East, the Soviet Far East, where they'd been confronting the, the, the Japanese. This is once they decided Japan wasn't a threat, finally, yeah. they could well, resupply. Ex exactly. Well, they, they discovered that, that Japan was not planning 
to attack across that border at that point. So they withdrew very large numbers of, of hardened troops that had been fighting big conflict in, two, in 1905. They'd been fighting again. Zhukov, who, who was probably the most important of his commanders, Marshal Zhukov, who he, he kept summoning from one place to another, to, Stalin did, to kind of halt a catastrophe and, and create a stronger defence. Zhukov had commanded the, the Soviet armies on that Far Eastern front and with very, very great success in battle. And so he had these additional forces. So the, more, the greater the delay, weather played a part, the greater the delay, the greater the, the forces, the greater the military hardware was being taken to the front line, the higher quality tanks were available, the best Russian tanks were, as the greatest, allegedly greatest panzer commander on the front, Guderian, confirmed that the heavy Russian tanks meant that he was firing like with pop guns at them because they were so much more powerful. So the Russian forces were building up. The Germans were getting relatively, they were still immensely powerful, relatively weaker, and they were getting further and further away their supply lines were getting longer and longer by the time they got closer to Moscow. I mean, a sort of tragedy comedy of this is the way in which the commanders on the front, on both sides, were saying, look, we can't do this. You know, Zhukov says the sensible thing to do is to let Kiev fall and reinforce Moscow. Bok at the front for the Germans is saying, you know, we've got to concentrate on one attack. And the complete denial of reality at the top. I think that's true. Hitler was in denial, Stalin was in denial, and neither cared how many of their men they lost in the process, and terrible strategic errors were made. And actually, the strategic errors on Stalin's side in relation to Kiev were enormous. He sacked Zhukov for, for saying that, that you should let Kiev go. Uh, they were greater strategic errors at that point than the strategic errors, the delay that, that was caused by Hitler. Hitler, however, had a demented vision. He was seeking to do the impossible with a scale of force that was not equipped to do it. And that was going to get worse and worse. You know, the peak moment would have been the summer. Had 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 It is just possible. I mean, I, I, I'm not too keen on what ifs because... What were seem to me to be more pertinent to the life that follows. Uh, but the what if is perhaps, had he not delayed, had he gone straight for Moscow, Moscow might have fallen. Had he not delayed, had he gone straight to the southeast, might he have got enough uh, land, enough minerals, enough oil to squeeze the Soviet army out of its potential to do battle? I don't think anyone really knows the answer. It's entertaining, but it's so, the reality is so hideous that I sort of stuck to the reality. <laughs> yes, you, you, you do. I mean, I was te very tempted to say, speculate on this, speculate on that. But actually, in your closing section, you do say, this is futile speculation. This is, you know, I don't... Um, but actually... But it, of, course it's, of course, it's very interesting speculation. And, and, but what is important is, in my mind, what's important, when you make judgments about how people behave, is not what you would do now with the benefit of hindsight, it's what they knew at the time and the decisions they made on the basis of what they knew at the time that you assess and judge. What was in their mind? What were the complex range of decisions that they, they had to make? That, that's what really mattered. Can I say, um, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a sideshow, but it's a, 
gripping one as a sort of vignette of Stalin's state of mind is the kerfuffle right towards the end of this over Dyadova and Dyadovsk. That Stalin hears that the city of Dyadovsk has gone. <laughs> it's completely bizarre. There is this uh, city which was very important because this is, this is as the, the, the capital is under apparent real threat and the, the Germans are still advancing. You know, they're, they're 50, 40 miles from the capital. And although the German commanders, uh, the Army Group Center, which was the central command, is saying, you know, we are exhausted. The Panzers are saying we can't advance any further. They were, they were forced to keep going. Great attrition is a consequence. Stalin was furious. There was this city, this city that had fallen. Why is it fallen? Stop it. Go back. Make sure that we take it again. And uh, Zhukov, who was, it fell on his watch because he was in charge there of the, of the defence of Moscow, uh, said, said, but I don't know what this is about. So he went to find out. And he was told by the general commanding that area that, no, the city was, was absolutely, had not fallen. They Anyway, they puzzled it out. This was in the middle of crisis, and Zhukov was out at the front rather than kind of taking overall command. Um, they puzzled it out and discovered that it was a there was another small village which sounded similar, which um, had not been taken because there was no need to take it. It was on the far side of a small ravine, which was irrelevant to the operation at the time. So um, at this point... Stalin has forgotten that he had said this, and he's raging. Why isn't Zhukov back at his command's headquarters so I can talk to him about the crisis? So he goes back and deals with other issues. And at the end of a conversation, uh, Stalin asks him about the, the situation. And, and Zhukov quietly points out that there was a village, that they had disproportionately sent huge numbers of troops to secure a village which was of no significance of any kind uh, for the defence of Moscow. And it's those little moments of absurdity that bring alive in some ways the, the reality of what warfare is like. You know, we, we live in times today which are filled with crisis, but there's always time to make decisions. Nearly always there's time. And you can take a step back and then two steps forward. You can negotiate a little bit down the, down the road unless someone behaves in a completely uh, lunatic fashion. Then you didn't have time because things were actually happening at huge speed. Yeah. Now, can I just end with one thing, which is sort of in as much as those of us who, who aren't military historians or historians at all, you know, you, there's an abiding idea about Barbarossa that it was the weather that won it. You seem to argue against that. You say they ran into the mud, but it wasn't the mud that did for them. I, I think that is that the mud and the cold, because the German troops were ill-equipped with clothes to a terrible degree. I mean, they, the frostbite and the gangrene uh, meant that they were... On some, in some units, there were more people unavailable for fighting because of frostbite, the cold, than from the attrition of warfare. And the mud, had, it didn't, you got terrible, terrible mud uh, and then terrible, terrible rain. The, the roads became impassable in the mud. You had to dig out from this glutinous depth, several feet deep, of almost uh, impassable mud. And that slowed down the advance. 
It also slowed down, everyone was slowed down by it. As it happens, the weaponry on the Soviet side was better equipped to deal with it because it was more familiar. The Soviet troops were, under, were far better protected to the huge envy of the Germans. So when they, they were, they, the first thing they did when they came across a, a, a slaughtered uh, a Soviet soldier was to take all his clothes off and take them to use them to, to warm themselves up at all. People were dying as a result of the, of the, of the freezing weather. So it was significant, but it was significant for both sides. And even if it had been perfect weather, the shortage of supplies, which was exacerbated by the weather, had become acute. There were not enough units were, were depleted by 50% very often. You know, instead of having 200 tanks, 50 tanks were available. And you can multiply that across the whole of that central thrust. Although the German commanders at the front complained about the weather in very powerful terms and, and got short shrift for much of the time because Back in the high command, they didn't really realize the scale of this because they hadn't done their forethought. I mean, the weather was the one totally predictable problem that they would face once you got into October, November. And I think that the weather merely exacerbated a, a problem that was acute in any case. And I don't think that it, you, you can validly say that it was the weather that what did it. It's a convenient excuse for those commanders who had... Uh, failed. And in fact, the best analysis from the German side does not make nowadays a great deal of the weather. Jonathan Dimbleby, thank you very much. Barbarossa is out now. The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin.